This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. Don't pick something just because you think it's going to get you to this endpoint. Pick something that you enjoy doing. And if you enjoy doing it, then you're going to be better at it because you're going to like doing it. So then just put you it's easier to put yourself into it and do your very best. And uh, it is amazing that uh, the very broad background of, of paths that people have taken already to become astronauts. The reason they got to become an astronaut is because they did something that they enjoyed doing and they did it well. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever-inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. All paths to spaceflight are unique, with different milestones along the way and various gatekeepers to get past, and many factors affect the final outcome. Those of us who made the final cut at NASA never know for sure why we were chosen over other candidates, but each of us has memories of the journey and suspicions about why we got that prized blue flight suit. Today I'm talking with Dave Liesma about his journey, what he thinks puts him there, and his take on what the future may hold. And Full disclosure, Dave and I flew in space together twice and have known each other for a long time, so we'll watch out to not put too much inside baseball jargon in there. So Dave, you were in the class of 80, just a couple of years behind me. George Abbey, the head of flight crew operations, current title, it's changed titles many times, but he was basically the boss boss of all the astronauts. And arguably he and seasoned veteran, Apollo veteran, John Young, They were arguably the kingpins on the selection panel that we all interviewed with. So you came in as a naval flight officer. He's the backseat guy that does radars and weapons and things. A lot of engineering and test experience. But you weren't the only guy with that background that made the final pool. Tell me a bit about your journey in the 1980s selection and what you think put you over the top at the end. Okay. And thinking back on it, it's really hard to pin anything on, and I think that's true of everybody. But uh, just a couple things that that I think selection committees tend to look at. Uh, You wouldn't even be there for an interview if you didn't fill all the blocks before that. I mean, you got to have the education and experience and all that, and there's hundreds of people that have that. So when you're looking at it, and and especially from a board that's reviewing these candidates and interviewing them, you're looking for what sets them apart. You know, what's what's different about them 
as opposed to the the average or the of the people that are there. And there are, everybody there is going to be above average. One of the things that I think set me apart is uh, uh, I'm a disciplined type person. I remember reading a book a long time ago, one of those kind of how to succeed type things. But the number one thing on there was make uh, your bed. Yeah. And, and that always, that, that always. That's something to do with being a Naval Academy yeah, graduate. Well, yeah, yeah <laughs> that could be. But it was that make your bed uh, instills this discipline in you to start with. If you can be disciplined in the little things, make your bed every day, just something that you do, then you can be disciplined in the other things. And so that kind of leads into a, de- a desire to succeed. And don't let your setbacks get you because everybody's going to have a setback. I remember when I was going through the, uh, the physical part before I even got to my interview of the interview process, I got told by one of the doctors that I was going to be physically Whoa. disqualified. You know, why is that? And they said, well, it looks like you've, you've got a wing scapula. And therefore, as a mission specialist, you will not be able to do EVAs. <laughs> you and I proved that wrong. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. But we will at least take it to the board, the medical board, to see if we can waive that. I was taken back a wing scapula. How does that keep you from doing EVAs? I, I don't even know what that is. It just means that they think that during birth, my scapula had been broken. And when it when it healed uh, back, it wasn't quite in line. And Okay. I mean, I, it shows, I guess, what they look at during those physicals. Well, I was never sure, but they look at just about everything. They look at things I didn't even know I had. <laughs> right. Yeah, me too. <laughs> But this desire to succeed was, I can get around this. You know, I, I you know, was determined to be able to do that. And so it's just a thing that kind of comes through, I think, in the interview process. Is, is, or do you have a desire to succeed? And can you learn from failures or learn from setbacks and get those? Everybody's going to have those. And if you have a setback, can you learn from it, do something from it? If for our selection process, and probably the same for yours too, uh, I think my flying background helped. But it isn't just flying. It's, a, it's to see if the people have a what I like to call an adventurous spirit. And uh, you epitomize that, Kathy. <laughs> I, just want, I, just, I just want your audience to know that if they don't. But uh, I, that, That's a good thing because I, I needed it to compensate for all of my setbacks, <laughs> which, were, which were many. <laughs> Mine too. But that adventurous spirit can exhibit itself in many, many different ways, but it's something that uh, you can you can tell when you talk about them. What do they like to do in their free time or what have they done different that, than other people? And, and those kind of things, are, I think, are important. You've got to show that you, you're willing to be independent and and to try things that maybe you might even be uncomfortable with to start with. I think that's part of being an astronaut, despite what anybody may say, I think Everybody that becomes an astronaut is uncomfortable with some parts of it <laughs> at, at some point in their in their training and getting ready to go fly. Is there a dimension of curiosity as part of that adventurousness? I mean, there's throw yourself off a cliff adventurousness. Right. right my right. sense is that's not the kind of adventurousness no. that we were looking for in the astronaut corps. I like that because that that is part of that adventurous spirit is a curiosity about things, and you and you're you're willing to go. Th- through that and satisfy that curiosity. And, and I mean, it could be in a scientific way. It could be in a, in a, just the way, well, I want to find out about this and, yeah. and you'll, you will research it. You're not going to do anything crazy, you know? Yeah. Rashly stupid. Right. If anything that you do adventurous is going to be probably be thought through and be uh, in a well meaning way, you know, to, yeah. to make sure that you're doing okay with that. 
Also, uh, I think some part of my upbringing came into, into play. My, my parents pushed me hard. Before you even get to the interview, I had done well in school and, and in the jobs I'd had because uh, they just they basically taught me that no matter what it is that you're going to do, do your best at it. Yeah. And if you're doing yeah. your best, then you can't say, oh, shucks, they should have picked me, but they didn't because of something or other. No, you did your best. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Factors beyond your control may have right. affected it, but right. you know you put down the best record you could. And sure. you're confident you're willing to stand on that record. Yeah. And, yeah. and then uh, I have a competitive spirit, you know, because <laughs> I, I, I think I, regardless of what people may say, the people that succeed well are competitive people. They are going to give it their best shot at what they're doing. And if there's somebody else that's doing it better, they're going to maybe figure out why are they doing it better? And what can I do to, to get to that level or something like that? Well, to some folks, competitive would mean if I see you doing better, I'm going to try to find a way to make you stumble so that I look better. Do you try to tease that apart in the selection? Does it matter? You know, I think that matters because I think that, that that'll come through too. I think you can tell by talking to people, you know, for the interview time, whether they're the ones that would shoot down somebody else to make them look better or they'll go, why is he better? And then let me work on that viewpoint and, and, and enable myself to get better and to do things. So that's what I mean by competitive spirit. Not that yeah. you, you push down the other person, but that you build yourself up to go, okay, I could do this differently. And then a willingness to accept different options. My background came from uh, military academy, aviation community. So if you put six of us kind of guys in a room with a problem, we'll all come up with the same answer. <laughs> and, uh, and yet when you put it in with a diverse group of people, and I found this out shortly after becoming an astronaut, when you started putting in females, you put in scientists, you put in doctors, wow, you get a problem and you go, man, that's, I would never have thought of that, but that's a great way away. So you have to have an open mind and be, be willing to accept different ways of doing things. Your way isn't always the best. And even though it may get you to point B from A to B, it may not be the way that really is the right way to go from A to B. And that, and that helps a sense of teamwork also, which I think is important. You don't do this by yourself. This is done yeah. through a team. Everybody that from the people that train you to the people that, that you're going to work with. I mean, it's, as you well know, it's, it's like yeah. Now, those last couple are things that I think are important for today. I don't know that the flying background is as important. I think an adventurous spirit is, but a flying background isn't necessarily. And I don't think that a military background is necessarily uh, the way that we're heading in the future either. From the last couple of classes that, I, that I've just looked at, the people that they're interviewing and selecting have qualifications that, man, am I glad that, <laughs> that I was selected a long time ago because, uh, wow, they're now looking more at uh, education and what have you done in the science community. If, you're, if you are an aviator, what have you done in addition to that aviation? I mean, it's... Mm -hmm. Because flying a spacecraft is not as near as important as it was with the space shuttle. Yeah, and they're not one-dimensional jobs by, right. by any means. Not yeah. at all. And you bring up a point that I always thought of astronauts in general as jacks of all trades and not necessarily masters of one. You know, they're, you may have a degree in geology, 
but you could do an EVA, you could do all kinds of things. Uh, you know, I had a master's in aeronautical engineering, but it wasn't the flying side necessarily yeah. that, that led, I think, to my selection. It's a, it's a fascinating topic, Kathy. I can't wait <laughs> to see your podcast and all this and what other people say, because it, it it's so wide open. Well, and my motivation in doing this is just for building on what you've been saying. I think there may be a lot of people out there with backgrounds and experiences that actually make them very well suited to work in space, live in space in the years ahead, who might not be applying because they've got some mental model of the kind of background you probably need. And their checklist says, yeah, I don't have a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it really has seemed like the, the range of skills and backgrounds being looked for has changed quite a lot. So you sat on... You chaired, in fact, three different selection boards about a decade, decade and a half after you came aboard. Yeah, right. When you're sitting in that seat, this is something I've speculated about for years. I have my theory. When you're sitting in that seat on the selection board interviewing people, uh-huh. are you mainly trying to rank the top ones? Or are you, first of all, trying to be sure you call out the ones who just are really not going to be a good fit? So that's a very good point. The selection process, this is in my viewpoint, my opinion, is as much a select out process as it is a select in. Yeah. When, when they all come in and you look at their resumes and they, you look at their applications, man, every one of them, every yeah. one of them is selectable. So now you're looking at what is it that sets them apart that would make me want to fly with this person or what sets them apart that would make me, I don't Never think I really to would want to. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't want to assign them to a crew with, you know, unless the crew was exactly like this. I'm not sure I'd want them to assign a crew with these other people that I know that are already in the office. And I think an ability to relate to others and see things from uh, other people's perspective is is important. And you can see that very quickly. Uh, there have been there have been people that have walked into the interview room and after about five minutes, you're looking down at, at their application or the resume, and you're looking at the person sitting there and go, I really wish this person that was in the resume was in the room and not this person, you know. I wish <laughs> this background fit with a better personality. Yes, yeah, yeah. Right, right, exactly. Can't you change the packaging here? <laughs> <laughs> and and that, that happens. I mean, I think people can fool you, but the whole process that you go through, and because you have so many different people on the board, the board usually consists of eight to 10 people from quite different and diverse backgrounds. Yeah, but all seasoned with some exposure to the space flight. I mean, they right. know what it takes to put a crew into orbit to do something complex and get them home alive. Exactly. But they come with different viewpoints. And so after, you know, the person has left the room, you, tend, you spend a few minutes just talking about that person and what you, what you feel with. And, and a lot of times I thought it was very important for me to listen to what each of them said, because I might have my viewpoint, but sometimes they bring up very, very valid points. And one person would leave and I'd go, man, I, I wouldn't rate them real high. And, and I always used my rating scale was uh, what PJ taught me. PJ was. <laughs> I was on the 1987 selection board. I wasn't. Skylab astronaut. Yeah. And PJ was on that board. He said he uses a clock. You give him from 12 o'clock down to six o'clock. <laughs> oh. You know, and he, and he he would just rate. And, and if anything above three o'clock would be people that he would, you know, look at again and be willing to talk about. If he gave him below three o'clock, he would definitely yeah. let his opinion be known. And sometimes they would be at 12 and then he'd have this little, he'd draw a little 
become a U-turn. <laughs> a little you know? curved arrow. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite a straight clock. The interview went on. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, sometimes it would it would turn the other way. But, but yeah. uh, it's important to listen to their viewpoints and to to get it down. And then the hard part is you get you might interview maybe a hundred people or so for a particular class. Maybe the first fifty percent of them. You can you you can find some good reasons to eliminate them. It's the last fifty that really is really tough to get them down to ten seats, fifteen seats. Yeah. I mean, I think that the selection boards are going to be even selecting even fewer because the flights are going to be fewer and uh, farther between, and they're longer duration. So the astronauts will be there for a period of long period of time, and you won't need to pick fifteen or twenty. You might need to only pick five to ten. You know. Yeah. And so the competition then even gets gets more Sipper. difficult. Is it still the practice when we were there? We were kind of farmed out in our first one or two or three or more years to yeah. different different roles within the ecosystem that makes a space flight happen. It, I've often likened it to starting out in the mailroom and learning yeah. by being part of all these different pieces. <laughs> so you kind of learned what it was like, what the issues were in that sphere, et cetera, et cetera. And by the time you got tapped for a flight, you had a much better understanding of what jigsaw puzzle pieces have to come together and the, and the kinds of people and teams that were bringing those pieces together. Because astronauts, astronauts are not actually in charge of much of anything. If you look at the formal reporting structures, yeah. but they have influence and responsibility across a wide range. And this we're all both talking about in the NASA context here. We'll yeah. shift in a minute and explore how yeah. it might be working in other, in other settings. But is that still the practice with fewer people, longer durations, longer training runs? Is there still that sort of farm team practice? It is, but it's a little narrower realm in which you farm them out to, you know. Uh, but as far as what their potential to, to do things in the, on their space flights, it's uh, somewhat similar to what we had. I mean, I remember I was surprised as could be when I got assigned to EVA fairly quickly early on. And went, man, they already told me that I'm not supposed to be able to do those. <laughs> you know, I got I got selected. But then, you know, I think that was as much George trying to prove that, you know, the doctor was wrong and whatever, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So those those kind of things factor in. To go back, one of the other things that I think nowadays that it's going to be important is language abilities, language uh-huh. skills. Some people are good with languages and others are not. And I think that a language skill in, a, in another language, and it doesn't matter because I've heard that if you can learn a second language from then on, it's not as difficult, even though some of the languages we have to learn are pretty difficult. And it could be Japanese, Chinese, it could be uh, Russian. You know, Russian. I mean, mm-hmm. all those. It's, but a language skills is, are important. Yeah. And, a, and the ability to be able to communicate not only socially but technically and that that makes it makes the language skills important you know one of the things i think my language skills and background gave me and mine are all in the romance yeah. i dabbled with russian for a while before the office was doing any russian training i could kind of see it coming so romance languages in german i think you listen differently if you've gotten fairly fluent in another language because as you know, if you, as a tourist, if you try to do a direct translation of your English sentence into any other language, that idea is not expressed in exactly that way in that other language. It right. is the same idea. It is you know, the same purpose and the same intent, but it, it's just said differently. Right. Not right or wrong, just different. And to be attuned 
in a sense, to that kind of variety. And I think it made me, it attuned me more, more intensely to listening for intent rather than just word choice. Right. And I think that may be important in, in future selections is diplomatic abilities. And one of those is tact, but the yeah. language skill becomes important in that because yeah. when, if they communicate and they're translating from their native language into into English and you receive it, like you say, it, it might mean something a little bit differently in the way that they translate yeah. it. If you know that that is a possibility, that really helps. That's true. So nowadays, NASA may still be the premier and most prized game in town. I, I don't know. But it's not the only game in town. Uh, SpaceX is picking people of its own accord. And there are other you know, outfits coming along. And I'm talking orbital flight here, not the yeah. the adventurous joy rides. Blue Origin, Axiom, uh, Sierra Space, to name a couple from the United States. Right. What is NASA's take on that? NASA astronauts are seeding a lot of those American companies now with their experience and talent. Where do you think it's going to go in the future? Oh, boy. I think it's going to go all over the place. I don't think NASA is going to be the only ones doing it. Although when it comes to uh, uh, remote exploration in, in space, I think NASA will have the lead, at least for the, my foreseeable future. The other companies, though, might provide the transportation. That's, yeah. that's very possible, that the transportation will come from an outside source from NASA rather than an in-house in developed. Artemis may be the last one that is NASA developed. Because there's other companies, you mentioned some Axiom, they're a space capsule and, and a bring people into space company, but Blue Origins is going to have their own launch system complete. Yeah. So uh, it's You buy be, a seat. You buy yes. a seat, they take you there, and then you do whatever NASA's purpose was. Sure. Yeah. Or you will be selected from their group of people that may have flown within their company, and then they'll NASA may be... Maybe the chairman of the board it selects, but they will be selecting people that may not be NASA astronauts to go on some of these uh, exploration ah. type missions, especially if there is a, uh, say, SpaceX or uh, Axiom provides the vehicle to go there. They will have their people on board without question. Yeah. If they ran a transport service to the moon, are you imagining the pick one SpaceX guys? Yeah. Be like the airline pilots, they take you there, they come back, they pick up another crew. Or are you thinking that NASA might also look at people that SpaceX or Axiom have sourced as contenders to take NASA type roles on a sure. on a mission? Both? You know, I think both are possibilities. I always use this as the uh are you gonna rent a taxi or are you gonna rent a car? Yeah. You know, I'm gonna call Uber and get my transportation, I'll go sit in the back seat and, and off we go. Or are you gonna you're gonna get a rental car and you're gonna be the driver, and both of those concepts are, you know, you can argue either one from a from a NASA viewpoint. But I sometimes think that the uh, taxi or Uber category is one that's going to win out at some point. Yeah, because uh, the people that own the vehicle can train their their drivers, if you want to call it that way, and then the NASA doesn't even have to worry about that and can train for the mission itself. What insights, if any, do you have, or what theories, I guess, about how those kinds of companies are looking at the people they select? I mean, I've been fascinated to watch you know, SpaceX charter an entire capsule and all the seats in it to a private individual. And in the instances so far, the 
the lead of those groups that have chartered it has had some pretty significant aviation experience, not yes. not military and not test pilot, but for real skilled pilots. But many of the other people aboard have just been wildly different. Uh, there's talk now, it's called Polaris Dawn of high altitude SpaceX mission, all private, all charter, uh-huh. private person, private crew and doing spacewalks. Right. Wow. I know. And Axiom, so far, though, the commander on the flight has been a ex-NASA astronaut okay. on their flights. And, and in the near future, I think they're going to continue that. But the other people have sometimes not even any aviation experience or anything. They're just, yeah. they're up there, not just for the ride, because Axiom has gone to space station and those people are have uh, attempted to, to do things. And I'm not even sure. Some of it's proprietary, I guess. So you don't really hear about it. I think that that is more the model that spaceflight is moving toward. Interesting. What will NASA be looking for beyond Artemis? Yeah. Fewer people, if your speculation holds true. But yeah. I mean, you're going to go build and assemble something substantial on the moon. Are you going to be looking much more for skilled trades than academically skilled people? I think that is a possibility. Or you will uh, contract that out to the people that are maybe have some other transportation modes at the, if you're going to erect this or do this in space, then this company here, they do that. So you'll, you'll subcontract them to do it. I think on the exploration missions though, or the, the ones that go, that are really ambitious type missions will probably be led by NASA and probably the commander type person will be a, a NASA astronaut. So I think those are type skills, leadership skills will also be ones that NASA will look at very, very closely in their selection process. Are the private companies taking notes or how, how are they looking at regarding importing or changing you know, the NASA experience or criteria into their selection processes? I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I really don't know. That's, a, that's yeah. actually a very good question. But I do know that they are trying to detach themselves from NASA in that regard. If, and especially if NASA has too many oh, government hooks on it, too many uh, hurdles, blocks to check and all that kind yeah. of stuff. I know that 15 years ago, SpaceX was looking at kind of renting mission control. Oh. And then mission control just got, yeah, you, nobody else can do this. We're the only ones. Therefore, you have to use this. And they started putting all these hurdles in the way. And finally, uh, SpaceX, Elon Musk just said, no, I'll do this on my own. I'll do it from a trailer with uh, laptops. Yeah. You know, and he figured out how to do it. <laughs> and wow. Yeah, they've got their own control center. <laughs> they do. They, yeah. uh, they, they actually, uh, I think, taught NASA a very good lesson that NASA isn't the only ones that can do this. So be a part of the community and not try to set yourself up as the only one. You, you don't command the stage at quite so fully anymore. Not anymore. No, that's very true. So, so I think that that team process and putting together a conglomerate or a union or something of, of uh, spacefaring nations, and then you can, this nation is really good at this part of it, like putting stuff, erector sets together in space, or others are good at the EVA aspects, or others are good at launch vehicles. Yeah. They've got a really good record. I mean, you have to say that we've been there. I mean, the Soyuz is a very, very dependable vehicle. And so we ended up there. You know, if it was not been, if it hadn't been a dependable vehicle, I don't think that we would have put so many people on board those things to go up to a space station. So I have two closing questions for you. 
One is about just getting to go for a ride in space mm-hmm. to orbit, but let's kind of stick with to orbit. I'll put both questions out and then you can wander through them. When it comes to space tourism, buy a ticket, take a ride, have some fun in orbit. Are we ever going to get to the point where my pre-liftoff briefing is about equivalent to the seatbelt tray table and oxygen mask briefing on an airliner? Or (laughs) will it necessarily always involve more than that to be ready to lift off on a, a tourist mission? And then the other question is, I'm curious how this evolution in who are astronauts, what it takes to become an astronaut. I'm curious how that has affected the kind of advice you give to young people who are interested in the opportunity to go to space. Seatbelt briefing and how to get there. The seatbelt briefing, I think we're headed in that direction. I don't think we're quite there yet, but I think we're headed that way. But people will have to, I mean, there'll be lots of uh, sign here on the dotted line that... It's more hazardous than an airline. You are aware of the dangers and, you know, there's no liability and all that kind of whatever, whatever they, the lawyers have to come up with. Uh, Because right now it is kind of peaking, I think. And then after these very rich people do this once, the average person cannot afford to do this. I mean, that's just the way it is because it's flying in space is not an inexpensive or it's not even an expensive vacation. It's a fantastically expensive vacation. So there's not a whole lot of people that can do that. But if they start developing, if the companies, I'm talking about the companies now, develop the skills like uh, Blue Origins wants to have a thousand people in space in the next 10 years working productively, yet whatever it is that, that it is. Yeah. And so if you've got some of those skills, that's the way to through those companies in, in a way to, to get up there. Earn your way aloft yeah. instead of pay your way aloft. Yeah, but just pay-as-you-go type thing, that's neat. And I think it'll always be there, but it's going to be more on a limited basis because it, it's it's a very difficult thing to do. And we haven't even tested the waters of what happens if something goes wrong yet. Yeah, yeah. We will get there. You and I both yes. know that we will get there at some point. It'll happen sometime. Now, on the other side of that, is somebody that, that's, that's looking to get into this business, whether it's NASA or another company, I think the selection criteria and the way that they go about it will be similar. They'll be looking for, they're going to be looking for top-notch people. And to me, uh, as you go to college, they're going to look for education and, and that kind of stuff. But as, you, as you're going through that and, and you get into your jobs beyond education, I think it's very important that you don't pick something just because you think it's going to get you to this end point. Pick something that you enjoy doing. And if you enjoy doing it, then you're going to be better at it because you're going to like doing it. So then just put you, it's easier to put yourself into it and do your very best. And uh, it is amazing that of the very broad background of, of paths that people have taken already to become astronauts, the reason they got to become an astronaut is because they did something that they enjoyed doing and they did it well. Yeah. And, and then that's kind of a basic thing that, in the back of your mind should be there. Do something. If you enjoy doing it, you'll do it well. And if people, if you do something well in what you are doing, it will be recognized. People will notice. And that's, that's the kick that gets you to the next level. People notice and they go, oh, this person really does that kind of well. So let me try them over here. Let me promote them or let me, let, oh, that, that stands out in your resume or it stands out in the interview process. Yeah. 
I remember the couple of times I was on uh, rating panels, stage one mm-hmm. of the selection process. A small thing that often tipped me one way or the other was somebody was broadening themselves and took kind of broaden themselves into physics, for example. And they didn't take the physics for poets class. They took the tougher class. And they, you know, they, the heck with my grade point average. This is about how much can I learn and how much can I grow? And off they went. And if someone had some mandatory class that was not in exactly what they wanted to do and lowballed it, because I didn't really care about it, it wasn't something I picked. Because, you know, NASA is going to assign you to do things that are not what you chose to do, and they still need to be done well. So, if, you know, if your mindset is, unless I really wanted to be doing this, I don't do it very well. I just get past with minimum effort. Uh, that was a turnoff for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you sound like you should be on the selection boards. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, those are the little things that people on the board look at and are looked at. The rating panel people look at very, very carefully. They do stand out. Yeah. Those, those are the little select out type things as opposed to the select in type things. Yeah. I, it's very important. I, I, I agree with you completely. Well, like you say, when you got, even the pool of finalists is commonly three to four times larger than the number of seats you have. Yeah. Yeah. So everyone you're looking at is superb, just great. But you're trying to discern some small thing that is a better right. fit or better energy or better prospects than these other. And they're all going to go, the guys you reject are all going to go off and you know, change the world in some wonderful ways. They're going to be fine. And they are. They're going to be disappointed for a week or so. Yeah. In the long run, they'll be fine. And the ones that aren't fine, you you made the right selection. I mean, yeah, you, you, that's right. <laughs> that's and the right. ones that, that go off in, a, in the other direction or something, and then they do very well, the next time they you see them, that shows up. Well, it's probably always going to be the case whether you're taking the pathway through SpaceX or Blue Origin or Axiom or NASA. That reality of they've got two, four, five, ten seats and they've got a hundred people that want one, that's probably going to be the numbers game for a long time to come. That that's the kind of final odds you're up against. So, you know, excellence, uh, some practical experience, like not just theoretical stuff, but putting yourself, as you said, in an adventurous way out into new things. And then how'd you fare when it didn't go your way? Or how'd you fare when <laughs> you had to get yourself out of a bad pickle? How did, you, how did you respond to that? Right. Yeah, you and I were very fortunate. We were picked on our first time through that process. Yeah. We picked several people later on that had been through the process a couple times, several times. And they're the ones that, that did like you did. They went off and went in their other way, but they succeeded very well because they said, okay, Maybe we're not going to be an astronaut, so that's fine. I, and I came this. back around and put their hat in the ring again. Yeah. I mean, Mike Pohl, who we flew with, I think yeah. got in on his fifth or sixth time, and Clayton Anderson famously took he, 16 he, tries to get in. Yeah, I, know, whatever, <laughs> yeah, I know. The numbers on some of those are big. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dave, uh, I'm delighted that both of our numbers was low, first time through. And always have been delighted that we got to fly together a couple of times. And thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Yep. And if only that photon torpedoes (laughs) had worked for longer. But thank you for calling me up to the flight deck to see that, because I did get to see a couple of those. And man, was that awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Well, one of the episodes, I talk about photon torpedoes and the fact that I'm sorry, but our photon torpedoes were much better than anything that George Lucas ever did. Oh, yeah. His went straight. 
<laughs> Physics doesn't allow that in space. <laughs> As we can testify. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.